0: The events of January 6th and the countless deaths of civilians at the hands of police officers has increased awareness of racism being embedded in our society. But for some, this current moment still feels isolated from over 400 years of racial violence in America. How do we do a better job of teaching the history and the context that shape our present? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the show, we hear from Jamal Green. He's a law professor at Columbia Law School and author of How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. But first, Dr. Keisha Blaine is one of this country's leading academic voices, and she focuses on African American history. She's Associate Professor of History at the University of Pittsburgh and author of a new memoir about civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer. We spoke with her earlier this year about a book she's co-edited called 400 Souls, A Community History of African America. The book is co-edited with Ibram X. Kendi, and it brings together 90 writers to tell the story of African American history in five-year increments. They focus from 1619 to 2019. I asked her why the book is called 400 Souls and not 400 Years.
2: So this is really uh, an analogy, I think, uh, as we were working on the project, there were several things we were reflecting on. One, we thought of the importance of presenting the the history as similar to the way one might put together a choir. And so that's one comparison. Uh, And and so with a choir, you would have uh, various parts. You'd have your soloists, you'd have your altos, you'd have your tenors. There's a sense in which the history in and of itself Uh, is a soulful history. So to say 400 souls was really uh, a play on words in order to capture the the sense of, um, I think one might say spirituality or even more so, the way in which part of what's happening through this narrative is is certainly individual actors shaping their destiny, but there is also an element too of divine intervention. And and I think uh, as a theme, religion and spirituality, those two themes come up in the text in powerful ways. And so 400 Souls as a title plays on all of these themes and and, and the analogy to the choir of thinking of African American history as a soulful kind of history.
0: And extending that analogy of the choir of the 400 Souls and the different parts that people play really shows up in the contributors to this volume. You are an historian, But the contributors aren't just historians, you have activists and poets and journalists. Why was it important to tell the community history with this diverse set of voices?
2: So for us, uh, when we really wanted to capture this community history, we, we did not want to simply pull together 90 professional historians to tell the history because we felt like taking that approach would ultimately mean that, for the most part, people would come to various topics uh, in similar kinds of ways. And so historians grapple with primary and secondary texts in similar ways and uh, were we're trained in similar ways uh, and and often write in similar ways. So part of uh, breaking free from simply asking professional historians was making sure that we would have diversity in terms of the pieces But also we recognize that there are aspects of the history which quite frankly are quite very difficult to tell because of the scarcity of primary sources. And here's where it's so important to have, for example, a creative writer, just imagine what might've taken place uh, in 1630 or uh, imagine how black people thought about a particular theme. in, In a period of time in which we don't have a wide array of sources from which to uh, develop the narrative, and so it, it was really about making sure that we brought to the volume diversity of perspective, but also diversity of genres, uh, because we were also thinking about the readers. We wanted people uh, to pick up the book from all kinds of backgrounds. Some people love, uh, you know, the, the standard historical texts, and, and others love the poetry, and others. I prefer the the more personal narratives. And so we wanted to reach as many people as possible and and bringing together a diverse group of writers, I think, helped uh, to realize that goal.
0: 400 years is a massive time frame for any group, any community. But with all of the nuance and the context and the detail that you've built into this volume, It also dispels, I think, the the myth that history is linear, that this thing happens and then this thing happens and then we get to the space where people have built community. And one Mm -hmm. of the ways that you disrupt that in this book is by breaking the history into five-year segments. Talk to us about that decision, that conscious choice to break it into segments and how that allows you to uplift the diversity of those experiences.
2: Yes, this is a a very important point. Uh, I think certainly when you encounter standard narratives, standard historical narratives, Uh, We as historians have all of these, we have all these rules uh, as it pertains to how we write about different periods of history. So, you know, for example, if we're talking about the Great Depression, generally, we of course, begin in 1929 with the stock market crash, and then we end with the beginning of World War II. And so there are all of these ways that we break up the history. uh, and, And, and that's meaningful, certainly, but part of what we wanted to do with 400 Souls was we wanted to give every single topic, certainly every historical figure, every place, uh, every essay, we wanted to give equal weight. Uh, and so it meant that uh, the person who wrote about the Civil War uh, ended up uh, having to just grapple with the same amount of years as the person who's writing about a doctor, you know, James McCune Smith uh, in the uh, 19th century, uh, and, and we felt that would bring about a sense of cohesion in the narrative. Uh, but also to your point, it helps you see the continuities, it helps you see the way that every development, every theme builds upon the other. And it pulls you out of this thinking that, well, only these particular moments in history are the right or the most important. It, it, it helps you see every single development as equally important to shaping this uh, and pulling together this tapestry of, I think, the beauty of uh, Black America and, and the history of Black America.
0: Let's talk about that Civil War section because it is written by Jamel Bowie. And he doesn't just talk about the Civil War in sort of an abstract. He talks about the role of Black troops who fought in that war. How does that help affirm the sense of agency and power that Black people have harnessed throughout those 400 years and move beyond the simplistic, here was a group that was oppressed and they just sort of waited for freedom to come?
2: Right. Oftentimes when we talk about the Civil War, to this very day, even in uh, certain textbooks, there's still a struggle in the way that the narrative is presented. And one of the things that tends to happen is that popular narratives will center developments like the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which, of course, is, is a significant development. And, and as Jamel Bowie emphasizes, it's significant because it opens up an opportunity for, for Black people, specifically uh, Black men, to, to, to serve uh, in the Union Army. What is clear? is that, as you point out, Black people are not simply waiting to be freed. You know, Black people are not sitting around waiting for uh, Abraham Lincoln. You know, they're they're not waiting. They're not even really waiting for the end of the war. You know, they are actually in a process of continuously resisting the institution of slavery. Uh, And part of what that that essay, I think, helps us see uh, is how everything changes when we center Black people, when we place them at the center of the historical narrative, then it is about what they are doing to shape their destiny, uh, the way in which they are participating, um, and, and they're strategizing to obtain their freedom. And it's not simply that all of these other historical developments are taking place and things are happening to them, but more so that they are, are key actors. And I think this comes through every single essay, but but particularly so in this Civil War essay, it is a retelling of the Civil War that places black agency at the very center.
0: I think one of the the greatest benefits of Telling our histories and telling them accurately and fully is that it can help people make better sense of where we are today, but also determine how we move forward. And there's a big debate here in Connecticut about curriculum and how we center those stories and include those stories for young people to realize their own agency, but to also do a better job of fully understanding American history. What about this book, 400 Souls, and its connection to how we teach history to young people? Would you say to educators, we need to really center?
2: It's remarkable to me how many students don't know the stories. They don't know uh, the history that appears in this book. And I see that particularly as a college professor. I'm now teaching a course on the civil rights movement. And every time I teach that course, students come in and I ask them, for example, to name, um, you know, Black women who were key figures in the civil rights movement. And immediately I get Rosa Parks, and then someone might say Angela Davis, someone might say Coretta Scott King, and then there's an awkward silence. And, you know, every semester I try this, you know, and, and I don't get, you know, nothing sort of shifts, right? And, and so what I'm noticing is Here you are, you know, here we are at a moment where all of these students and and they're, you know, they're brilliant students, you know, they did well, they've, you know, they've made it to pursue their bachelor's and and here they are taking my course. And yet they are still um, not knowledgeable about someone like Fannie Lou Hamer. They're not knowledgeable about Septima Clark. They're not knowledgeable about uh, just an array of remarkable Black women who, of course, I center in the class, but for for my students, they say, wow, if I hadn't taken your class, I wouldn't even know who Ella Baker was. Uh, Well, why does that matter? How do you understand the Black Lives Matter movement in this current moment? If you don't know who Ella Baker is, uh, you have to know who Ella Baker is and and her concept of group-centered leadership to be able to make sense of the movement uh, that that we now see before us that builds upon uh, the, the ideas of Ella Baker. And so, there's so much work left, uh, I think, uh, for us to do as educators, and, and, and I know that many people are committed uh, to, uh, to, to telling these narratives, and, and, and I certainly hope that 400 Souls will make it a bit easier for instructors uh, to assign pieces, to, to think of creative ways to bring these narratives into the classroom.
0: We are both college professors. We spend a lot of time centering those stories and centering those narratives. So I have to ask, do you think those types of courses should be required for all college students? Or should the approach be to offer more courses and more opportunities for students to learn and engage?
2: I do think those courses um, need to be mandatory. And in fact, Uh, this is a a conversation that my colleagues and I uh, had just over the last summer. Uh, You know, we were just looking at everything that was taking place, not only in the United States, but everything taking place globally uh, with the uprisings. And it was so clear that it was important for students to understand uh, specifically the history of anti-Black racism. Uh, And so what we did was we offered a course Uh, just a one credit course uh, for incoming students. And in putting that course together, I think it was an opportunity for us to grapple with, you know, what are the core texts that we want students to read, Um, you know, what are the kinds of assignments that we would uh, make sure that they would do in the course. Uh, And we ultimately, I think, uh, concluded, not surprisingly, that it was so valuable For every single student, every single freshman who came in uh, to the university to take that course, regardless of whatever they uh, wanted to major in, because in the end, even if you decided you want to go to med school, you have to know the history of anti-Black racism because there is actually a a history of medical racism in particular uh, that you need to know. You have to understand if you're going to engage with uh, diverse communities and Uh, And so that was, I think, a good opportunity. And part of what we're doing now is trying to make sure that that uh, continues just, you know, beyond just the semester, beyond this moment in which we're talking about uh, the uprisings, but that it becomes part of the curriculum, a permanent part of the curriculum, whereby every single student, regardless of your major, will just take, you know, just a one credit, just a one credit course mandatory that will help you better understand the history of anti-Black racism, and and we thought that was important, and I certainly hope that other universities will do the same.
0: Keisha Blaine is Associate Professor of History at the University of Pittsburgh, and she's co-editor of 400 Souls, a community history of African-America. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Dr. Blaine, and later legal scholar Jamal Green discusses how our obsession with the Bill of Rights is causing more division in our country. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're speaking with two scholars who provide crucial historical and theoretical context to this current moment of racial unrest. Later, we hear from Jamal Green about his new book, How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. But now we continue our conversation with Keisha Blaine. She's Associate Professor of History at the University of Pittsburgh and co-editor with Ibram X. Kendi of 400 Souls, A Community History of African America. I asked her to share the story of one man who's featured in the book. His name was Hugh Davis.
2: So this is a story that I think um, I suspect few people know, uh, and and this is uh, in 1630. Uh, Hugh Davis uh, was a white man who was publicly whipped uh, because he had sexual uh, relations with a black woman. Uh, so uh, this is uh, in colonial Virginia, uh, and this is a pivotal moment in the history. Of course, you know, 400 Souls begins in 1619, uh, and uh, what is clear is by the time you get to 1630, uh, there is really no debate about, uh, you know, how anti-Black racism functions uh, in, in society already, even in these formative years. Uh, the whipping of Hugh Davis uh, is a moment where uh, it is clear that if you are white, uh, in And again, this is you know before before the establishment of the nation, so just in these formative years, that if you are white, uh, you are already uh, occupying um, a different space, certainly within the hierarchy uh, of society. Uh, and what Hugh Davis does, uh, the message, of course, uh, that's presented to everyone in this public whipping uh, is to send a message that, well, you cannot, "Quote unquote," defile yourself, um, which is the language that was used at the time, uh, by having relations with a black person, because in so doing, you've you've really uh, taken away from this this notion of pure whiteness, uh, which is which is key, right, uh, to the development, uh, you know, of these ideas of white supremacy. So ultimately, I think um, this particular moment helps us see how certainly slavery as an institution uh, is developing the colonial era, but even more so how there is increasingly a divide uh, in society. Uh, and, and, uh, and of course, it's I, I would point out to the importance of the person who's writing the piece in 400 Souls uh, happens to be a mixed race, right? A, a woman. Uh, and, you know, Ijeoma Alua writes this piece uh, and connects this History to her own experience uh, to explain why, even though her mother is white, uh, that she uh, is black. Uh, because uh, what what you know what the history tells us is the way the society uh, operates, uh, and and blackness is is viewed uh, as defiling uh, a person. Uh, it begins in this moment in 1630, uh, and extends uh, to this very day.
0: You know, after the insurrection on January 6th, a lot of people said they were surprised that the use of violence, that in a country that, you know, lauds itself for its commitment to democracy and making decisions based on votes, that people would then enact these acts of violence at the center of American government. But your book documents the prevalence of violence throughout American history, not just these big events, but the sort of everyday acts that when black Americans pursue or gain some degree of power, that is often followed with violence committed by white Americans. What is it that we need to know about violence being central to this pattern of development in the U.S.?
2: Uh, well, violence is, unfortunately, you know, such a key aspect of American society. And, and particularly, you know, I always tell my students, uh, if you think about just the period of slavery, um, how, you know, how is it possible to maintain an institution that exploits a group of people? How is it possible to maintain an institution that does not even... Um, recognize uh, Black people as people? Uh, how, how do you maintain a system uh, for, for so long? Well, you do that uh, through multiple means, and particularly you do that through, through violence uh, and, and force. Uh, because clearly, uh, as we show in the text, Black people were constantly striving from the very beginning, constantly striving for freedom. They understood that a life of enslavement Uh, was truly not uh, a life Um, and and they needed to continually push against uh, the system of exploitation Uh, yet violence uh, became the the method to try to, for example, um, keep people from revolting. Uh, Certainly uh, in conjunction with an array of policies and and laws uh, uh, in the United States, uh, but it's so intertwined. And what we, we also kind of gain for Black people is a pattern, which, which backlash several of the follows essays, and then backlash, backlash follows in point 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 the form out. of violence. Uh, and, and in particular, I'm thinking about Herb Boyd's essay on New York. And he talks about slave revolts in New York uh, in the 18th century. One of the things that he points out that we see to this very day is that every single time there is some progress as it pertains to Black rights, Black political rights, uh, any kind of gain for Black people, the backlash follows, and the backlash follows in the form of violence. And so with that framing, um, I think many of us were not surprised by what took place uh, in January um, uh, of this year because it was clear, I think, uh, that with the uprisings and, and the attention, all of the attention on Black Lives Matter and uh, the momentum uh, that was growing nationally and also globally to to finally confront anti-Black racism, uh, it would not surprise us that then we would have developments taking place, acts of violence uh, meant to uh, certainly divert attention, but but actually to intimidate uh, people uh, who are are striving uh, for full rights and equality uh, in this country. So it's a pattern of behavior. We see it throughout the 400 Souls book and we're, so, we're certainly continuing to see it uh, in our everyday lives.
0: Your book covers 400 years or 400 souls from 1619 to 2019. And now that we are one year into these dual pandemics of COVID-19, as well as continued acts of racial violence, what is the story that you would tell about that period or this period uh, when it comes to African-America?
2: Well, I think this is certainly um, a period where people came together. I think, uh, you know, I, I certainly think about the, the pain and, 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 the, and, and just the grief that, I, that so many of us have been dealing with over the last year with, with COVID-19. And I, as I was writing the introduction, I was, not the introduction, but the conclusion, rather, I was reflecting on this, uh, that it's at the same moment that we're all um, grappling with so much pain and loss in the community, there is still this glimmer of hope that emerges um, with the uprisings. And, and, and I say that because uh, what is what was clear, certainly, and I think this is, Continually happening is that the unfortunate, um, you know, police killing of George Floyd, but also of Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and so many others over the past couple of months. What it did for many people uh, was to awaken their political consciousness. I think um, anyone who might have been sitting on the fence, anyone who might have been uh, perhaps not even paying attention to what was taking place. Uh, they were finally recognizing uh, what so many of us have been saying for, for, for so long. And, and, um, and it was, I think, encouraging to see so many people of all different backgrounds come together to march in the streets, even you know, putting the, themselves at risk in the midst of a pandemic uh, in order to affirm that Black lives do matter and so I think this is a moment where people would reflect on a lot of pain and, um, and grief, uh, yet with a, with a sense of hope that people uh, were coming together and, and committed to bringing about significant change.
0: In the book's concluding essay, you write, Are we our ancestors' dreams? Are Black people in the United States now living the lives our ancestors of the past imagined for us? I am not sure. Tell us, Dr. Blaine, what gives you that uncertainty, but what also gives you the hope that you just mentioned that we could at some point realize those dreams?
2: So when I wrote uh, those words, I was thinking about George Floyd. I was thinking about Breonna Taylor. I was thinking about Tony McDade. I was thinking about so many lives lost um, and and feeling uh, so much frustration uh, as a historian, uh, just drawing these connections and recognizing that for all of the the gains, all of the progress we've made, we're still at a place where one has to uh, look over their shoulder when they walk outside. You know, one has to be fearful of an encounter with the police. Uh, you know, um, I think about Sandra Bland and 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 just the the. The terror of, of knowing that you could simply be driving down a highway um, and then your life, you know, would would be completely snuffed out, uh, you know, in just a short period of time. And it, it doesn't make any sense. And I, I thought it was important to acknowledge that we have not yet experienced as black people in this country. We have not yet experienced full freedom. Have we made gains? Yes, of course we have. But we have not experienced full freedom. Uh, and and so, I stop short of saying that we've fully, um, you know, accomplished our ancestors' wildest dreams. But uh, the same history that I think helps me reflect on uh, what needs to be done also gives me hope, because I think about the civil rights movement, for example. I think about the Montgomery bus boycott. I think about how it took an entire year for community to mobilize and to demand. Uh, changes to the bus system, to, to, to bring an end to segregation on the buses. And I think about the despair they, they would have felt in 1955, yet uh, I also think about the success that they, that they experienced and how that um, led to, uh, I think, just um, motivation for so many others across the nation. And so it, it is a constant, I think, pull in, in both directions, uh, celebrating the wins, but never becoming complacent and never staying at the celebration, celebrating, but also pushing forward and recognizing that whatever you've just won, you actually have to continue fighting to keep it.
0: Dr. Keisha N. Blaine is Associate Professor of History at the University of Pittsburgh. She's co-editor of 400 Souls, a Community History of African America. Dr. Blaine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Keisha Blaine's most recent book is Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Coming up, law professor Jamal Green on how the vague language of our constitution pushes us to fight over what fundamental rights we really have. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Our next guest argues that while rights are a sacred part of American identity, they are also the source of some of our greatest divisions. Jamal Green is professor of law at Columbia Law School, and he's author of How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. Professor Green, welcome to
1: Disrupted. Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Let's get right into this book because you write that in taking rights seriously, we often take them too
1: literally. What does that mean? Well, it means that when we're confronted with a rights conflict, and and here I mean both courts, which I think play a leading role here, but also the rest of us as well, we tend to think of that conflict as one of those rights has to win and the other right has to lose as opposed to trying to imagine ways of thinking about rights coexisting within the same space, within the same conflict, and figuring out a language of reconciliation or mediation. And that's what I'm trying to point us towards.
0: Compromise is a very important tool, but it's also something that raises the question of whether there are areas that we simply should not make compromises. And I'm thinking here of You know, the right to vote as one of our most treasured rights in the U.S. And though we use the language of a right to vote, there is no affirmative constitutional right to vote in this country. How do we reconcile that tension between creating a space where there can be multiple rights or multiple definitions and the very real fear that our rights are not just being curtailed, but are being effectively undermined?
1: Well I think voting rights is a is a great example of a certain phenomenon in American law which is the rights we have don't actually depend on a, you know a list of rights somewhere we we have this understanding of, you know that we look to the constitution and the constitution will tell us what our rights are but in some ways the most important political right that we have is the right to vote and the right to vote as you say kaleila is not protected Um, by the constitution specifically, We, we read it in there and we should read it in there because it's so very important. It's an example, I think, of a larger phenomenon where there's a lot of sense when you have a very vague constitution, as we do, there's a lot of sense in deciding rights cases on the basis of the particular values and interests at stake, as opposed to Abstractions about constitutional interpretation, right? If you if you approach voting rights purely from an ab, for, from a sort of const, legalistic abstraction, you'd look at the Constitution and say, "Where is it?" But of course, but of course, it's there, um, and we can we can think in the same way about other rights that are not necessarily specifically within the constitutional text, but that um, but that we obviously think are important: um, rights to education, right to health. Or, uh, right to food, even, um, we tend to valorize um, uh, a very limited set of rights that we say are in the text, but even, but even those aren't, freedom of speech is one of them, where the right that's actually in the constitution, which talks about Congress um, and not states, for example, uh, is much more narrow than our conception of freedom of speech is in reality. And there's good reason why we take speech much more seriously than the narrow language of the constitution. But the, the whole point being that what's really important is not specified by the constitutional text, right? In order to resolve cases, and we all really believe this at heart, although we don't know that we believe it. Um, the, the only way to really resolve um, uh, cases in a responsible way and resolve these kinds of conflicts in a responsible way is to, is to, is to understand that they coexist and come into conflict and try to de- devise a language of of what I call mediation in the book.
0: You use the word we quite frequently. Who's the we that you're referencing here? Because in many ways, there seems to be such a division about what we know collectively and also who is the we that gets to make these decisions and arbitrate the kinds of things that you're mentioning.
1: Well, I'm glad you picked up on, on that, because I, I do think that there, there there's a couple of ways to think about the subject here, the subject being who's the, who's, who's the agent here. And we, we tend to delegate rights disputes to courts. We, we think that that's what they do. When in so many ways, our rights disputes are continuous with our political disputes, um, and Courts take these things and then they apply their training, their professional competence to it. And they say, well, we're courts, so we've got to talk about original meaning or we've got to talk about text or we've got to look at dictionaries from the 18th century to resolve what are fundamentally values disputes, um, values disputes from today. And that's a mismatch. And it's a mismatch that I talk about in the book. And part of the the, uh, ambition of the book is to, recover some agency for us to be having the same kinds of conversations about rights that courts are having, which requires courts to back down to some degree. But the other thing that's important here, and I I don't use we to to suggest that we're one big melting pot or something, that there's some collective good that we all are pursuing. It's quite the opposite, in fact, in that the we is a uh, a very disparate, very divided, set of people. And there's nothing wrong with the fact that we're divided. I think we sometimes we sometimes uh, find ourselves uh, believing that we're divided because some of us are right and others are wrong, where we're divided because some of us are angels and others are devils. And we just have to figure out who the angels and the devils are. We've got to, and courts maybe can help us do that by asking Madison who the angels and devils are. <laughs> well, that's, that's obviously absurd. Um, we we disagree on fundamental questions of value because we're different from each other, uh, because we're a a pluralistic society. That's something to be celebrated, but but it's a challenge for law because law has to be decisive. And so that uh, confluence of pluralism, genuine pluralism with the need to be a rule of law society is the problem of American constitutional democracy. there was a way in which that problem was solved, or, re- or I should say resolved, in the in the at the founding, which is they relied on self-governance. They relied on um, uh, bracing community institutions like the jury, like local legislatures. Um, they, they, they did care about rights, but the way in which they pursued rights was through political processes. Uh, that's highly problematic when the community is constituted by only a small fraction the, the political community, the decision makers are a very small fraction of the community So they they understood the the uh, I think a very constructive way to think about rights which is we have to t- talk about rights and decide about rights as a collective but they didn't understand uh, that pluralism is equally important. Uh, so the, the rest of American history in some ways has been trying to in, in, in big fits and starts, try to integrate a genuine understanding of difference into an understanding that we are we have to act as a community.
0: So I wanna talk about the strategies that you mention in the book, because it's a real strength of this book that you don't just point out the problem, you actually suggest ways that we can resolve some of these challenges or at least work through them. But before we get there, help me understand this tension, Professor. For many communities, and I'm thinking in particular African-American communities here, they have looked to the courts when they have felt that political leaders or leaders at the local level have undermined their agency and in many ways made them vulnerable. That's certainly that reliance that we see in terms of trying to open up society. And now we're in a process where many people are concerned that because the Trump administration was able to stack the courts in some ways it felt like in perpetuity, that giving the courts that much power could actually reverse some of those trends that we've seen or the progress that has been made. So how do we resolve that tension between being concerned that courts have too much power and also the historical recognition that courts have been a backstop or protection for underrepresented communities?
1: So it's a real tension and um, communities of color uh, our right to be um, to be concerned about those trends. but of course they cut in, in both ways right So the foundation of our rights tradition is brown versus Board of Education and where we rely on courts to be uh, to have a certain kind of, of, of courage and be, be heroic and confront political uh, opportunism and political terrorism um, in the case of the Jim Crow South. And at the same time you know we're sitting here, Um, just after Georgia has restricted the voting rights uh, of its citizens, in part seemingly motivated by large turnout by African-American voters, that uh, that is enabled by the fact that the Supreme Court, uh, eight years ago, decided in a case uh, called Shelby County versus Holder, that section five of the Voting Rights Act would have no teeth. Section five of the Voting Rights Act would have prevented these changes from going into effect. So there you had political actors trying to protect rights through politics, which is a very important avenue through which we actually do protect rights, it's not just courts. And then courts taking that away, right? So courts can be can give and courts can take away. That's, that's politics at some level and it's power, right? People um, are going to have disagreements about these things. And I don't think one can resolve in advance, um, whether all the power should be f- with, with the politicians or all the power should be with the courts. Those both have costs and benefits. And what I'm trying to suggest in fact is ways of diffusing that power so that courts have a role to play and politics has a role to play. If a judge is acting in bad faith there's nothing you can do about that. Um, that's, that's a, that goes beyond legal doctrine, right? people acting in good faith who are actually trying to solve problems is if you're confronted with a problem where you don't want to give too much power to judges because um, you're worried about uh, undermining democracy and you don't want to give too much power to politicians because you're worried about undermining individual rights in some way. Well, how can we bring those into some conversation with one another? It involves some level of deference to political actors in some circumstances, but those, those circumstances should be driven by facts, by evidence, by evidence of good faith, right? So that the difference between Congress when it passed, when it reauthorized the Voting Rights Act in 2006 and the, legis- the state legislature of Alabama um, when it's segregating its schools, right? Um, there, are, there are very important contextual differences there that a good faith judge should be encouraged to take into consideration. And there are lots of ways in which our legal culture actually discourages judges uh, from um, Looking at context, we abstract away from the context.
0: So let's talk about what we do to disrupt that tension and to really figure out a better way to do this. And you write in your book that there is this possibility of a better system, a better way to move beyond discriminating between rights or having this very sort of binary good versus evil approach. What's a better way to do this?
1: So the, the better way goes by a, no, a number of names. I talk about mediation in the, in the book because I think that's a term that people recognize. Uh, uh, you know, if, you're, if you go to family court, right, they're going to send you to a mediator. Um, and the way people resolve disputes in their everyday life um, involves some forms of mediation. You think carefully about what exactly are these parties asking for? And that includes both parties, right? Not just the rights claimant. Uh, in, in law, we would use the term proportionality. And what it means is that when you have a rights conflict, instead of spending all of your time arguing about who, is, who has the right and who doesn't, because that's going to determine the case, and that's, that's the U.S. approach, instead of doing that, you spend much more time talking about questions like, what is the state trying to do here? What is actually happening in this dispute? What's its objective? What's its evidence for that? What's the fit? between what the state is trying to do and, and how the state is trying to do it. What's the degree of burden on individuals here? Not in an abstract sense, like the state used race or the state used speech or regulated speech, but in a concrete sense, What are they? how are they actually burdened? How is their speech actually burdened? How are they unable to flourish? So there's a whole series of questions and these are very well developed in other countries that courts in the US Um, don't really spend much time talking about. And they don't spend much time talking about it because they're too focused on the first kind of threshold question of is there a right? Who holds the right? Um, And I I think there are ways that 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 has a few problems. One, it kind of separates rights from the idea of justice because questions about justice are questions about how much are you burdened? How could we relieve this burden? And so forth, not questions of what right is at stake. Uh, because rights are often at stake on both sides. Um, It also, I think, ends up being polarizing because our political conflicts, which are conflicts that have to be resolved at retail, end up being resolved at wholesale. Like um, whose rights do the constitution care about? Well, that's a very polarizing question with very high stakes. Uh, And uh, I think the job of decision makers in conflict, and that includes judges, should be to lower the stakes of those conflicts, rather than raising them,
0: you write in the book that this is, in many ways, a uniquely American phenomenon, and you talk a lot about Europe and how these sorts of tensions are not just resolved in Europe, but how the fundamental approach is so different. What
1: is it that Europe gets right in this context? So I, I do use a bunch of European examples, but I do want to I do want to emphasize that that we're the ones who are different, right? Not that Europe is different. Europe. Uh, European courts and legal systems are much closer to the rest of the world than ours is. And so it's Europe, it's, it's Europe, it's Asia, it's Latin America, it's Canada. Um, and I, and I, I spend some time on those jurisdictions too, but what they get right is understanding intimately that all of the action when it comes to a rights dispute is working out, um, working out our differences, through asking that set of kind of factual questions. And I'll give you an example. Um, uh, This is actually not an example from Europe, but an example from Canada uh, about um, sign language interpretation. Um, This is an example I use in the book where there's a hospital in Canada that, or uh, the the province of of British Columbia, um, stops paying for sign language interpretation in hospitals and uh, someone sues, um, sues on behalf of, of people who um, have hearing impairments. And in the U.S., this would not be a constitutional claim at all <clears throat> with the idea that the state has to provide you with anything. I mean, we're very, we tend to be very, um, very austere when it comes to what the state has to provide to people. But, uh, and, but the Canadian court sees this and says, well, the kinds of questions we have to ask are, well, exactly how burdensome is it on people who are hard of hearing? The, the The other side here, the, the state um, uh, ends up arguing that you know, if you or the province, that if you allow hearing impaired people to, to have, you say, you say the state has to help those people, well then what about people who um, who don't speak English or don't speak French uh, and and have other trouble communicating in the court sees this. And this is exactly the kind of thing that an American court would say, well, if we can't give it to everyone, we must give it to no one because rights have to be strong and absolute. And so and so, therefore we give it to no one, right? But the Canadian court sees this and says, well, that's not the case we have. <laughs> right? The case we have is people who are hard of hearing. And if if you bring me a case about people who um, need trans other kinds of translation services, well, then we'll deal with that case when we deal with it on its particular facts. And there are differences between the ability of someone who's hard of hearing to communicate um, and the ability of someone who just needs language translation. And those differences matter to the case. The case is about those kinds of factual, contextual differences. It's not about stepping back and figuring out, well, what's the the rule for what the state must provide to its citizens, right? We can't resolve that kind of rule um, in an individual case, right, you work that out over time. And that's something that those courts recognize I think in part because those courts and those those constitutional democracies are, are, are more um, reliant on a post-World War II understanding of the world, which is an understanding of the world as a, a, a pluralistic world in which you have to care about everyone's rights. At the same time, we have a lot of baggage within our own American system, not just from our, what we think the founding Era meant, but also baggage having to do with with race and the particular problems associated with with having racial terrorism happening in the in the U.S. Uh, and, and so that ends up ends up distorting the way we think about how to bring rights claims.
0: Jamal Green is the Dwight Professor of Law at Columbia Law School, and he's author of How Rights Went Wrong: Why Our Obsession with Rights Is Tearing America Apart. Professor Green, thank you so much. Thank you. This episode of Disrupted was originally produced by Katie Tularski and Anna Elizabeth. The rest of our team includes James Scoble Wolf and Shekinah Collier. I'm Kalila Brown Dean, and I'm wishing you and your family a very joyous, healthy, and prosperous holiday season. Thanks for listening.